It's the Airhead 247 Podcast. The Airhead 247 Podcast, powered by Wedgetail Ignition Systems, state of the art ignition for your 247 Airhead. Proudly made in Australia by motorcyclists who love their BMWs by the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America, who invite you to ride inspired. And Boxer2Valve.com, the premium supplier for all your airhead replacement parts. Now, let's get this thing fired up. Well, hello again, everyone. On the program this week, a slight diversion. Well, check that. It's a pretty big diversion from our usual topic, and we'll dip into the world of the BMW K75. This is going to be a two-part series. Now, before everyone cries foul, here's the deal. I bought a 94 K75 last summer. That bike has always been on my radar as an affordable alternative to the 247 that still retains the style and familiar comfort zone, we'll call it, of a vintage BMW. Well, the bike I bought, I enjoyed it, and no surprise, if you know me at all, I've already sold it in favor of a 94 R80RT, which we'll learn about sometime down the road. Back to our topic here. So while I had the K75, I have to say I really enjoyed it. Silky smooth throttle delivery. The engine performs as you would expect, and it is smooth as well. Well-mannered handling and a timeless style that I think is pretty easy on the eyes. All these things the bike is known for, it delivered. I'm happy to say the bike was sold to a young man here in Arkansas. It was his first bike, believe it or not, and he told me he really enjoyed the look and style of the late 80s sort of era of motorcycles and wanted to keep the bike in its stock configuration. This was strange to hear from someone who's under 21 as well. So best to you, with that K-Bike going forward. All right, so back to buying the motorcycle. I took a trip to Alabama, just outside of Birmingham to buy this back in May of 2023. It turns out Rick Jones at Motor Rod Electric, he actually serviced the bike before I bought it, and he was just a stone's throw away from the seller. So this was a great opportunity to pick up a new ride and catch up with Rick. On my way back to Arkansas after buying the bike, I stopped in Memphis, had a chat with Leo Goff about the K75. That conversation will be in part two, the next episode in this series. We'll round out the program today, however, with a visit from William Plam. He had a lot of experience working on these, riding and selling the K75 when they came out in the mid-80s. Okay, I want to mention a few things that have been on my radar before we dig into the program this week. I want to say thanks to all who took the time to donate to the Hans Muth GoFundMe page. We're all hoping for the best for Hans in the new year. A reminder, Brooke Reams R80 ST auction that is up and running. Tickets to win that restored ST are on sale through mid-March. We'll drop a link to the website in the About section of this program if you'd like to buy raffle tickets for that. Many of you may recall our visit with Robert Sable at Rough Child Motorcycles out in Los Angeles. Well, he's been posting some fun and informative videos, I think, 
of his builds on YouTube. So if this is of interest to you, might want to take a look at that. Also on YouTube, our old friend Demir Senek. He's at it again in the Airhead Barn. This time he's restoring a 1975 R90S. He's got a great video series following along with his progress on the rebuild and refresh on this bike. We hope to catch up with Demir again in the new year for another visit. Our Airhead 247 website, that will be up barring any last minute issues in the very near future, hopefully actually January of the new year. One aspect of this I'm pretty excited about is the library of searchable service bulletins. I've been working with Nick at Airhead Misfits, who's doing really all the heavy lifting of building the webpage and getting these service bulletins all sorted out. It's a big job. So that aspect of the website will be sort of ongoing once we're up and running with that in the coming weeks. We'll have some curated used parts for sale. Some cool bits I've collected over the years, some of you may find useful. And yes, the obligatory t-shirt and decal offerings. However, I'm hoping we've created something more unique that you'll enjoy and not just sort of afterthought branded garbage I see a lot of people sell. You'll be the judge of that. We're using the Airhead 247 logo and verbiage, so you won't be wearing anything or displaying anything that says podcast on it, which is a word I could do without anyway. Just a reminder here, sales from the store will go directly to support our efforts with the program. So as I said, hold tight. Got a lot of stuff coming soon to you on airhead247.com. Finally, a reminder to drop us a line anytime with whatever is on your mind, airheads247 at hotmail.com with an S there, airheads247 at hotmail.com. All right, as I mentioned in the long diatribe at the top of the program here, it's all about the K75 this week. It's a two-part show. On this episode, we're gonna hear from Rick Jones and from William Plam. So let's get things rolling. We're headed to Gaston, Alabama, home of Motorrad Electric, for a visit with Rick Jones. Okay, we are uh, in Gadsden, Alabama, uh, the world headquarters of Motorrad Electric, visiting with Rick Jones in the shop. So, Rick, hello. Hi there. It's good to see you. Thank you. Thanks for hosting me and uh, no letting me stop in. So. The reason I'm here today, and we'll get to this a little bit later in our chat here, is I bought a K75 uh, from a guy called Dave, and you're familiar with the bike. As I mentioned, we'll chit-chat about it uh, a little bit later. You worked on it, and so I came down here to buy the bike. I said I'm 15 miles, 20 miles from the Motorrad Electric headquarters. Let's come down and see what Rick's up to. So we're in the shop. This is kind of how I imagined it. <laughs> Um, got a nice aluminum building here, and what I want to start out with is let's just talk a little bit about the bikes sitting behind you. Okay. So the first one I'm looking at here, and you told me a little bit about this a few minutes ago. It's a 1970 short wheelbase slash five. Tell me about the bike. First off, how long have you had it? I've had it since approximately 1994. A friend of mine who is a service manager at a BMW auto dealership in Huntsville called me up and asked if I would be interested in a stock big tank slash five 
Uh, and if so, they would take it on trade if they had my assurance that I would buy it. I told them, sure, go for it. Anyway, brought home the Slash 5 and didn't ride it much until I rode it for a club campout weekend event. And I got to feeling pretty sporty on it coming back home. <laughs> and I noticed I was getting whiffs of oil every time I would stop. It would catch up with me. I said, hmm. You know, never could see anything. Riven it up, yeah. looking behind me. But uh, always smelled burning oil. I had, the trip was about 75 miles. And by the time I got home, local, at every red light, every stop sign, the oil pressure light oh. was like a tachometer. I said, oh my, she's loose. Yeah. So I rode it home, took the engine out, put a slash six engine in it, rode it for a number of years and decided to put the original matching number. It's 949th one made. Wow, that early. Yeah, February of 1970. Wow. Uh, and took the original engine, went all the way through it, everything, put it back together, sent the transmission to Bob, Bob Clement, uh, sent the final drive splines to Hanson's, and I bought a brand new, new old stock part in the bag rear wheel. Oh, wow. Nathan had it. I traded him a charging system. At Boxer Works. Yeah. Brand new rear wheel, brand new splines, trans new transmission, yada, yada, yada. Anyway, and it all put together and it's made a really nice motorcycle. It's Now, is that original paint or has it been repainted? Original paint. Is it really? Original paint. Now, that, that it's white, and uh, it really looks nice. Alpine Vice. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, the front fender I replaced. But again, Nathan had a new white fender in the bag. Wow. So I just swapped them. I've still wow. got the old one over there. How long ago was that? Was that uh, still in the mid-90s? Ten. No, all this work occurred over probably a 10-year period. Okay. Uh, but it, that was, that was in the, uh, 2002, three, four, okay. somewhere so, right there. All right. It's about 20 years ago. But anyway, but yeah. But I've, I've finally about got it, uh, nothing left to do but ride. Yeah. Now I, the, one of the first things I asked you was, did you fuse it? Because the early slash fives were notorious. They yeah. weren't fused. Yeah. And well, I, rem I had a conversation who I'm trying to remember, maybe I was talking with, um, who well, the it, Germans the Germans had forgotten that they'd gone to 12 volts. <laughs> you know, they used to never put that a six volt system isn't gonna do anything but make the wires stink. Yeah. You know, 12 volts will burn them off. And that was a gross oversight on the part of engineering. Either yeah. that or it was German arrogance. I want to say I was talking, it might have been Ted Porter, and he was telling me when he was still working on these bikes, when they were still relatively new, meaning five, six years old, whatever, somebody would, for instance, the bike would fall over, the turn <laughs> signal, the brake switch or something. Would, Front, the brake lever, the brake bracket lever holder on the right side will rotate into the handlebar and a hot terminal of the brake go. switch will hit the handlebar. Then it's uh, toasted marshmallows. Uh, until something burns through. Yeah. Because, I mean, anytime the switch on, it's going to be getting current. And, oh, they were dreadful. <laughs> and so your solution to that was? Circuit breakers. 
Tell me about that. Self-resetting. Tuck nicely back in the headlight shell. And if everything, if anything ever stops working, uh, give it a few minutes, it'll come back while you look for the problem. But at least you're not going to run out of fuses. Yeah. Now, what's wired up to the circuit breakers proper? What what exactly is fuse or fuse? You just or- replace the fuse holders okay. with a circuit breaker. That's all there is to it. So, for instance, that's uh, a couple. No, normally, on a f- um, if we go up to a slash six, for instance, those had two fuses. Right. All right. So, basically, your turn signals, uh, headlights, that kind turn of Turn signals, stuff. brake lights, and horn, horn. are on one fuse. And tail lights and instrument lights and park light are on the gray fuse. Okay. Yeah. Park yeah. light. That's yeah. right. That's right. Yeah. Because the headlight's on a relay. So, essentially, that's how you've got that wired up then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Same same way. I've just replaced the fuse holders with uh, with re- auto resets. And I imagine that you haven't even thought about it since you've done that. Never had issues. Never had an issue. Now, what's the miles on the bike? Uh, unknown. Okay. I mean, really unknown. Uh, it, well, as I found out when I went into the original engine. Yeah. What'd you find? <laughs> <laughs> oh my. <laughs> I have never in my life, in my 45 years of working on BMWs, I have never seen a crankshaft this worn out. You could see it with your bare eye. You could see the main journals were kind of stepped. Wow. You know, and when I took it apart and pulled the crank out and I saw that, I was just like, I, I was stunned for several minutes. It's like, how in the hell does this happen? Yeah. And I said, you know, I, I put it aside and continued stripping down the, the block. And I've also found, five minutes after found the crank, I found that the oil pressure relief valve was gone. I had that happen to me on a bike. And that means that this thing had seen 200,000 who knows how many miles of unfiltered oil. Mm -hmm. The owner kept changing the filter and it didn't make any difference because it was all going through the bypass. And that didn't show up on the oil pressure light? No. No, because it's got plenty of oil. Mm -hmm. It's just not going through the filter. It'll have pressure and everything. But man, (laughs) the, the wear in the crank journals, I mean, was sufficient to make the oil pressure light. And it, and it rumbled in the right foot peg. It it felt bad yeah, by the yeah. time I got it home. But anyway, that that is the worst worn out BMW crankshaft I've ever witnessed. It's the only one I've ever seen wear out just from using it. Now, did you go? Did you buy a new one or just find a good? Nah, one? <laughs> <laughs> nah, you crazy? <laughs> yeah, I was going to say a new one's like a thousand bucks or something. Yeah, and for right? what? It's yeah. the same part that you'll pull out of this slash six sitting over here. That's I mean, just fine. You yeah. know, and you update it with bigger coarse thread flywheel bolts. Mm-hmm. So right. you update just a little bit right. and improve it. So no, nah, lots of used parts around. Uh, I even had all the stuff at that time, but uh, yeah, that was a that was a profound learning experience of the importance of that bypass valve. Interesting. Um, I've seen them break the spring before, but this one, the ball, the spring was gone. The little screw-in plug was still there, but there was nothing behind it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wow. 
Now, also on this, I wouldn't have noticed this, uh, and you mentioned this to me, The even somebody who knows these bikes probably wouldn't have noticed it, but you snuck a different uh, sort of uh, swing arm and drive shaft in there, right? Yeah, it's a bolt-up special. Now I'll now I'll never win anything in a in a vintage <laughs> display again. Everybody will be looking at my swing arm. Yeah, but yeah, it's an R sixty. It's nineteen seventy eight R sixty five swing arm with a cushioned, dampened shaft and a large diameter stiff tube. Um, Makes a big difference. Yes, and it bolts up. It's a bolt-up deal. I had to tweak the mounting bracket for the rear brake light switch. Just a little bit, but everything works. That's it. Now, you mentioned, so one thing you said you noticed with that is that the shifting is just a lot smoother. Oh, absolutely. With that sort of cushion. Absolutely. I mean, the expert rebuild by Bob Clement certainly had Helped. a yeah. lot to do with it. But uh, in general, a dampened drive shaft, I mean, that's why they went to it. Mm -hmm. That's why they did that. And less, less lash and wear. On the final drive, on the transmission, it's just a, a good thing to have something springy in the, in the. Uh, but it especially benefits shifting. Yeah, that's that's very nice, uh, nice modification, as you say, bolt on. Now, a lot of people when these bikes first came out, and I interviewed Dwayne Ausherman about this. The short wheelbase was notorious for the so-called tank slapper. Now, Dwayne tells the story. Uh, and I may get this wrong. It's been a while since I talked to him about it. But basically, the forks were coming to the factory. They weren't, they were crap to start with, and then they were never aligned properly. Right. It had nothing to do with the short wheelbase. Right. Lengthen, lengthen the wheelbase, slow yeah. it down. But of course, they couldn't understand in the first place that the market conditions in the U.S. virtually assured handling problems on that motorcycle because not only did they have funny geometry on the front ends, we had eight inch high That's handlebars. Right. And people were bolting. And you put two big fat Americans on the bike and a touring trunk behind Sheila. And a Wixom fairing. And a Wixom fairing on the handlebars. And then you run 85 miles an hour and bad things happen. Yeah. I mean, that is a fact. Yeah. I mean, it, it really, because, and the, because the Germans had low handlebars, they might have a pair of aero bags, maybe not, more likely a tank bag, and that's it. But anyway, they weren't having that problem. And so they, the engineers were like, but they just didn't realize that how different things are here in America and uh, it's a good point, but ultimately they got tired of fighting it. They made slight improvements in the front end, but then they get ah, let's add the wheelbase, and now no problem. <laughs> now, have, have you ever noticed any ill handling issues? I've on this? I've touched triple digits one time, and I was brave enough to look down and see it, and I backed off. But it was not scary. I mean, I was not loaded. And nor was I maneuvering. Uh, so I'm sure both of those would have made a big, well, if there was need to be doing either of those things, I wouldn't be running 100. I was going to say, I mean, no. if I'm on a This slash, was a straight road, straight, empty yeah. highway, and I just wanted to see what the old pig would do. <laughs> so 
Yep, I'm satisfied. That's good enough. Yes, yeah. You got you got a 50 year old motorcycle that'll run 100 miles an hour, and and still be running when you slow back down. That's okay. <laughs> well, it's a great looking bike, and I'm just well, really thanks. I'm just really impressed with the with the paint too. I mean, that's yeah. I was very fortunate. I think apparently the way the tank and the headlight nacelle and the headlight ears all survived without a scratch. I think it lived behind a better fairing. Makes sense. It must have had a frame-mounted fairing on it, and that would protect everything. Can you see this, uh, where it might have been You mounted? can see yeah. on the frame where mm -hmm. something's been clamped to it. On so, the down tubes, yeah. Uh, I took that as a, but that, I mean, the headlight's perfect, and you just don't find slash fives. If they hit, if they fall off the side stand and hit the ground, the headlight's the first thing that That's hits. That's exactly right. And And it's... This shape and the and a ring no longer will fit. I mean, now next to that, let's move on. Next to that, you've got uh, yeah. what? Now, what's the green called? What's that color? The green, uh, turf green. Okay, is that a BMW? Color? It is a BMW color, uh, concurrent for the time period of the 68, 60. I think it was used up until 72 or 74 automotive paint, uh, but cars were that color. Okay. Uh, but as usual, any car color you could get on an ordered BMW. Gotcha. Okay, that makes sense. So, and so this one is a 69? 68. 68 R60. R60 US. US. And I was just commenting on how that green paint, the frame is green too, really looks nice with the US front end, the non-Earl's fork. It's a, it's a, it's a very attractive paint scheme and i'm just glad to see something besides black <laughs> <laughs> yeah, i know we were talking about that i get tired of restoring black motorcycles and but everybody wants a you know black with white pinstripes and a sidecar i mean that's just that's that's the ultimate so yeah. and as you were but saying but i got to give the doctor credit of i've done one more green bike and two red ones and one was a us a r60 us really nice machine but he uh, he tried something a little bit different, but uh, the the um, Granada Red also is very appealing. It's sharp. It is sharp. It is sharp. Now you were telling me you're sort of caretaking this bike right now for a friend of yours who's not able to ride it really kickstart it as much as he should. But so you're sort of looking after it uh, for him. And what a right. great what a great place to stash a bike with you. Yeah. Well, he could. He could do a lot worse. I mean, <laughs> exactly uh, right. his ex-wife could get it, but or she's not his ex-wife yet. But anyway, scarier still. Yeah. But yeah, instead of sitting in his shed and getting crusty and no, I couldn't have that. So and I'm thing, glad to store it here. Yeah, yeah, it looks great next to your uh, slash five. Spare tubes. Yep. Got them. Spare starter relay and clutch cable. Checkaroonie, these are just some of the things on your checklist you may have when preparing for a road trip on your 247. Two things you may not have considered, the BMW MOA Anonymous book and the MOA's Roadside Assistance Plan. No matter how well you and your bike are prepared, yep, the unexpected can happen. The BMW MOA Anonymous book it's one of the most confidence-inspiring items I pack when traveling. It's full of contact information 
for MOA members across the U.S. and internationally who can offer assistance in the event of a breakdown or provide a tip on where to grab a good sandwich or catch a live band. I've used the anonymous book on a few occasions over the years. The result, always the same. Friendly assistance with a repair and a great story to tell down the road. Conversely, I've hosted and assisted fellow riders over the years, and the same applies. Always a fun story and the feeling of satisfaction when helping someone in need. Now, roadside assistance plans. These start at $20 a year for the basic and top out at just over $60 a year for the Platinum Roadside and Tire Hazard Protection Plan. That includes 100 miles of free towing up to four times a year and two tire replacements each year up to $250 for each tire. The Platinum Package covers up to three bikes regardless of the brand or year. As with any offer, there are details and conditions here, so be sure to check out more on this on the BMW Motorcycle Owners of America website under the Resources tab. So next time you've got a long road trip planned, yes, pack your spares and make sure your bike is tuned and ready to go. And for that extra peace of mind, have your MOA Anonymous book and roadside assistance plan ready as well. Back to our conversation with Rick Jones on the K-75. The other thing you mentioned about this, and I might not have even noticed it, <clears throat> excuse me, until you uh, brought it up is, of course, now the U.S. has the uh, standard telescopic front end, but it doesn't have the sidecar mounts on it either. Right. Now, you, could you, you put, could you easily, I don't know how easily, would an Earl's Fork go on that bike? The fork would fit no problem but you don't have any sidecar mounts. But some people did, in, you know, they did insist, I hear, that dealer, and have the dealers put an Earl's forename on them hmm. uh, due to one cause or another. Maybe they ran out of Earl's. Uh, I don't know, but I've heard of them being switched. But these, uh, these bikes, anything with a U.S. front end does not have a rear sidecar ball. So that kind of that negates that idea. What's your take on why they did the telescopic fork end on the tail end of the slash two? So my guess would be like a lot of things, tech, they were ch slowly changing. They were transitioning to the slash five. That was the new front end. So they figured, let's try it on this last run. Is that yeah, safe? well, I mean, this is supposed to be the newest, latest, greatest engineering. And they did, after all, invent the telescopic front end in 1937. Um, so they were going to go. They knew they were going to transition to telescopic forks anyway. And, and I don't know if they ran out or what. But anyway, they started putting out the, the telescope front ends. Now, is that a scent? It looks, is it the same front end as that's on your slash five right next to it, or is it different? Essentially, except for some very, very minor and subtle differences, uh, it is the same front end. They changed the springs, they changed the dampeners, uh, and then there was the whole thing with the top plate, with the holes not being. Uh, Dwayne Osherman, you know, went to the factory and showed them <laughs> that, look! <laughs> and so they they made some improvements in the slash five top trees, but not a lot. Yeah. 
but essentially it's the same. Okay. And then next to that is, and this will get into our K-Bike talk here, <laughs> is your K75S. And <clears throat> so let's start the conversation this way. So as I mentioned at the top, I came down here to buy a K-Bike. And mine, the one I purchased is a K, it's a 94, just straight K75. It looks like somebody put the cafe fairing on it yep. after the fact, which yep. I kind of like the look of it. Yeah, those. I mean. It's one of the things that drew me to this particular bike. Yeah, and it works well. It, it does. doesn't upset the handling. You can go as fast as that motorcycle will run, yep. and it won't do anything weird. Yep. So, and okay, now people are going to say, now, wait a minute, Rick. Wait a minute, Darren. <laughs> this is the Airhead podcast. Why are we all of a sudden talking about K-bikes? So, my angle here is why would uh, a tried, true Airhead rider like you and me want to want to give a K-bike a You've got one. You've had it for a while. I've ridden one. My Some of my buddies have them. I've always been intrigued by them. And your first comment right out of the gate was there. I'm paraphrasing you here, but it's now it's the modern poverty special bike, meaning they're oh, the, the poverty cheap. rider bike of yeah. the new millennium <laughs> uh, in that it has technology to make it painless um, overall, uh, so many maintenance issues have been eliminated and there's very few items that need to be religiously looked at, drive shafts, blinds, et cetera. But, uh, I mean, really you don't spend a lot of money riding a K75 tires, brakes, and oil when it needs it run synthetic. And that won't even be a problem very often. Um, but yeah, they, uh, you can, and they're laying around dirt cheap. They are bottom feeder motorcycles. Now yeah. people are buying them and cutting them up and making, I know. making idiot cafe racers. And it's because they're cheap, you know, and because usually it's running, they don't have to spend any money to make it run. They can just whack it up and cut it up and, and there you go. But you know, turn it into a fenderless, uncomfortable seat bike. Yeah, <laughs> but, much, you know, right? a $1,500, $1,200 running K-bike is not unheard of. Um, I would much rather throw for a K-75 because they see less stress mm -hmm. and wear. They had certain stuff done differently on the K-75 from the get-go that they already knew was wrong on the four-cylinders. Yeah, now the K100 was the first K-bike to come out. Right. Right, and so... They learned everything bad with the K100. <laughs> and essentially, the big... Of course, you're it's a, you're missing a cylinder is the difference. So it's one less cylinder than a K100. Also, did they have to change the frame geometry a little bit because the engine block's a little Yeah, shorter. it's a different frame. Right, okay. Basically, a shorter, shorter opening for the engine. Just, you know, change this dimension and... But yeah, they uh, made the the four cylinder for two years, <laughs> furiously learning the stuff before they released the K seventy five. Because the K seventy five came out of the gate, no recalls, no hinky stuff. I mean, it was right. I was gonna say, unfortunately, everybody who bought the first K one hundreds were the beta testers. Yeah, we're we're. <laughs> pointing and say, oh, no, no, it'll have this wrong. It'll have that wrong. But now, no, they don't. Another thing we should mention to try to keep our airhead conversation germane, yeah. here, I guess, to a certain degree is they do share some parts. 
Okay, so first thing you'll notice when you get on a K75 is if you have a later model R100R, uh, you're going to recognize the hand controls. You're going to recognize uh, the forks, I think, uh, as well. Yeah, they're they're uh, Shawa yep. Japanese brand forks. Excellent. Hand, hand controls are the same. Yep. Uh, Brembo brakes. Yep. Uh, pretty much the same uh, there. Headlights. H headlights. Round headlight. The diff and also I did not know this. I, in fact, I read this uh, just the other night. Apparently, correct me if I'm wrong, K75s have an R80 clutch. Have what? An R80 clutch uh, and clutch carrier from an R bike. I've never, I, I I've never cross-referenced the parts. I believe that's the case. No. I don't. I, I'll, it, it's possible. Darren, I, make a note. Look at that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> clutch disc diameters may be different. I think that. I think that they're was the definitely deal. they're the same clutch between a K seventy five and K one hundred. Okay, but I do believe they're different. Okay, on an airhead boxer. Yeah. Now, uh, and so that's kind of where I want to say the similarities end because obviously we're fuel injected. This is basically kind of like a small car motor turned on its side, yeah. for lack of a better yeah, way. Yeah, absolutely. It, right? Uh, but it's it's a, it's a completely different riding experience from a traditional airhead. How would you characterize it? Uh, not exactly thrilling uh, in that it doesn't, like a, like a lot of BMWs, it doesn't do anything suddenly or in a huge, scary rush, <laughs> including stop. <laughs> but they're entirely adequate for any kind of sane riding. And you're, okay, this is okay. I'm not impressed. But then at the end of the day, you realize that it's been flawless. And at the end of the week, I mean, I've taken week-long tours on that motorcycle. And it's like, Damn, I better check the air pressure in the tires. <laughs> you got to do something. I got to do something. I'm, I'm 1,500 miles from home. It's, it needs something. Yeah. Uh, and it didn't. But anyway, so uh, it's uh, very, um, very easy to live with. They are. And <clears throat> we should say, and this story has been told a lot, uh, I, I think I visited with a few people about it, when the K-Bike came out, uh, and I guess that was 84, 85. 84. Yeah. In Canada. Oh, well, was that where it was? Canada and Europe. They were, the U.S. was 85. Okay. So when that came out, the quote-unquote last edition of the <laughs> R series came oh, out. Please. Yeah. <laughs> as a side note, I saw somebody was selling one recently. And they and always think they're worth way too much money, too, because I guess. guess what? They weren't the last edition. I know. But Thank the, you, BMW. <laughs> but the interesting thing was, I think this had some documentation with it, which was kind of neat, which is essentially kind of like an explanation slash apology letter from BMW saying, yeah. here, have a battery charger. <laughs> here, have a helmet. Didn't they give them a helmet? <laughs> Something, yeah. You know, they gave them enough swag. Now here, go away. Quit your whining. Yeah, here's a certificate. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You get a certificate? <laughs> <laughs> but it wasn't the last of the R-Series. But all that to say, the K-Bike was there. They so expected way more response than they got. It, okay. And if it hadn't been for GSs, they would have lost their ass. I mean, the GS saved the company again. Right. Uh, but by continuing to make 
airhead GSs. Um, they they had to put the full stop brakes on this last airheads business. <laughs> and, you know, I had heard, and from interviewing a few other people, there wasn't necessarily a huge customer sort of backlash or demand that saying, oh, you know, we're stopping this or whatever. I mean, of course, people were. Uh, but talk to dealers. Like, for instance, I talked with Bob at Bob's BMW, or when I think I talked with Tom Cutter about it. Uh, people were accepting of the new K-Bike. I mean, this is just where the technology's going. Right. And it... The, and for the most part, it works. It, yeah. I and mean, it, that this is what I would call, for lack of a better term, it's the classic K-Bike. And that went up to, what, 90... When did that... Uh, 90... See, well, 91 was the first four-valve K100. Okay. Yeah, up until 91. And, of course, poor K75s never got the four-valve head. No, they didn't. They would have never sold another K100 if they had. And that model lasted to what, 94, 95? Uh, 95 okay. was the last Ks. Yeah, which is the one I've got to 94, so right, towards the right. end of the line. It's the last iteration. So let's talk about that. So the bike I bought, I bought off a guy called Dave. He had bought it from somebody, and it had been sitting, which I'm learning. Uh, and what's one of the first things you told me is if you own a K-bike, that's worse than almost running it without oil. Yeah. It's like keeping a dog in a pen in the backyard, you know, except your dog doesn't get a sticky fuel pump and die, usually. <laughs> but Jay, <laughs> yeah, right. now he he bought the bike. Did he bring it straight to you and uh, say, "Hey, I just bought this"? No, I... he worked on it. He he made valiant efforts. Okay, uh, he replaced the fuel pump. It was obvious the fuel pump wasn't working, but he never could get the fuel pump to operate after it was installed, and that was related to the fuel, the low fuel light level sensor, the float arm. Uh, K-bikes, old K-bikes have a dis disconcerting habit of failing that float assembly and it makes the bike stop running because it interferes with the, the power to the pump. It sends power to the, to the wiper circuit for the float, for the light, and to the pump. And if it loses connection, you're, you're gone. done. Wow. And... There are no new float assemblies in America. There's none in Germany. Uh, he tried buying a used one. Same thing. Guess what? That's why it wasn't in the bike. <laughs> uh, so at that point, um, I had to improvise, and I bypassed the, the low level, the low light, and um, made good connections and... Uh, We've been riding motorcycles a really long time, computing how much fuel is left in the tank via the odometer. Yes. Except when a bleeding airhead fails the odometer, splits the plastic gears, then you got to fix. You know, you got to fix something because you'll run out of gas. But anyway, that's um, fixed it up nice and solid. Uh, did a major service on it. Slowly ended up doing a major service because I got the fuel pump a hundred percent. Had it sitting here for three, four days, waiting on Dave to come get it. And I noticed this oil puddle. I mean, and it was too big to ignore. It yeah. was, and the underside of the engine was already wet. So it's like, Dave, 
This thing, uh, another problem from sitting. Yep. Water pump seals, it was gone. So I pulled it down and put water and oil pump seals in it. One more problem eliminated for 75,000 miles. Um, maybe longer if it's ridden every day. Yeah. A lot of a lot of K bikes did well over a hundred thousand and never touched the water pump. Yeah. So anyway, now what and, was the what was the condition of so the uh, the injectors were they bad? Did you just clean those? I didn't need didn't to. didn't do anything. Didn't need to. Okay. They were, you know, I, I would make that call depending on how it runs and how easily it runs and how easy it starts, and it, you know. Touch the button and usual before you let your finger yeah. off the button, it's running. So yeah. it fired right up. Injectors don't need you. Fired right up. Now, so he and then really at only fourteen thousand miles. It's a low mile bike. Wow, it's a low mile bike. Now the funny thing is, so yeah, he I guess he brought it back a couple times, and and this isn't a commentary on you or the motorcycle or anything. It's just the fact that it had been sitting for so long. Yeah, you get the bike out, you've got to put some miles on it, and like we were talking about. You got to do that exactly. to see what kind of attention it needs. Exactly. So yeah. he gets it, brings it here to you a couple of times. He thinks he's got it running. Third time, he goes out, and the I guess the trip meter, the gears the trip on the meter, they just went to hell. He he said, "That's it, I'm out." Which K bikes do that? Yeah, occasionally. It's not unheard of. It's not common, but it's not unheard of, and it's always a pisser when it yeah. happens. Now, every, just about every airhead I currently own. I think with the exception of my R90S, I've had the speedometer or tachometer rebuilt oh, at yeah. some point. I mean, that's, that's just... Well, people somehow think that these plastic-filled instruments made in the 70s <laughs> yeah. are going to live as long as they are <laughs> without any case. further attention or lubrication <laughs> or calibration. And that's, that's right. not going to happen. That's not the case. I mean, instrument repair guys do a thriving business they do. because people ignore... The instruments. That's exactly right. It's the last thing. Well, people spend money on their instruments when they have to. That's right. And exactly right. So, so that's what I'm looking at. But I'm not going to worry about that in the, nah, immediately. But I do send it to send it to Rick Borth at uh, overseas. overseas Speedometer. He'll take care of it. I do think I have to get in there and lube the splines, the drive splines. That is a job I think I need to do. It. I am. I bet you. When it comes apart, it's going to have a nice coating of gray molly coat because this guy, the owner, was. I saw the receipts. He was astute enough to know. And, and you know, somehow I miscommunicated with Dave. I thought he had already checked the rear splines. Yeah. And so when I had it here for tires, when I had the rear tire off, I didn't pull the chunk and look at it. But I'm betting, I make a prediction that they're. Doesn't matter. At 15,000 miles, if they were bone dry, they're not going to be hurt because K75s have nickel-plated splines. Oh, okay. Yes. Nickel plating doesn't by itself rust if you neglect to lube it. So what you're saying, Rick, is I can probably get away with the probably summer. Probably get away with not looking, but I'd have a look at it. I will. I'm going <laughs> to I'm gonna put some miles on it this summer. I think what I'm going to do, uh, it's going to be kind of my winter project bike, although I'm buying it early. <laughs> But uh, that's generally that's generally been my mo uh, for the past few years. Find something uh, in the summer, ride it a little bit, and then when uh, December, January come along, I'm out in the shop, staying busy, not bothering my wife. Yeah, right. Yeah, <laughs> I would be looking for a normal seat 
You know, it does have the low seat. I sat on it. It didn't bother me. I need to put some miles it on it. It will in 45 minutes. <laughs> okay. You're tall enough. Your knees are yeah. going to be okay. from sitting now, bunched up. I have, you know, a uh, sheepskin gel pad kind of thing I yeah, can pop on there. That'll help some I'll race. Put on. Now, when you met, that's the first thing I think when I called you about, and we talked about it, and you're like, oh, yeah, buy the bike. You know, goodbye. It's, it's ready to go. We talked about the seat. And so I was like, okay, how hard can it be to swap a seat? It's not like a airhead where you unhook the hinges and put another one on. Well, it is to put a normal seat back on. Yes. To, to go to a low seat. Man, there's yeah. a bucket of stuff. <laughs> and know. it's all special and it's all coming from BMW. Yeah. I mean, but for somebody that needs a reduced seat height, there's nothing finer, which... I would imagine the low seat stuff would sell quickly. We'll see. Uh, I don't know. I, I so you battery battery uh, panels, side panels, side covers. There's a couple other hinges and doodads and whatnots. Uh, the hinges will all be on the seat. There will there will be one little scissor folding hinge that'll keep the seat up under the seat. Yeah, the the, yeah. the uh, lanyard that holds it open. But other than that couple of six millimeter eclipse, a couple of side panels, okay. side covers, right. and uh, and that rubber uh, piece comes off around the tank too. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's one screw in the back mm -hmm. and uh, adhesive clips on the tank, which warm it up uh, with a blow dryer. Take uh, take dental floss and stretch it under the foam tape. Mm -hmm. And it'll peel it right off and not put a mark on the paint. I got gotcha. you. I got gotcha. you. Because they use some pretty ferocious 3M sticky, but it'll all come off and somebody will be glad to have it. Okay. I guarantee you. Fair enough. I've already been kind of scouting parts uh, and I've seen a couple of the side panels in that. I think that's Mystic Red, if I'm not mistaken, uh, right. that color. Right. Um, it should even be able to get a close enough match and spray bombs. Oh, really? Side, for your side covers. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, take the paint code. Uh, we have O'Reilly's Auto Parts locally. <laughs> uh, only one of the three O'Reilly's does paint. But the one that does paint will do, they will put whatever you want in your own spray can. Hmm. So they will mix your paint code, put it in a can, and charge it. Here you go. Wow. It's about 30 bucks for a spray can that matches. I didn't know that. Yeah. Okay. So if you have O'Reilly's Auto Parts in the area, check them out. I do. We have we have that, one. That uh, negates the need for spray equipment altogether. Wow. Okay. That's good to know. Well, great catching up with Rick Jones there. Information on all things Airhead Electric. That is, after all, his specialty and our specialty, I suppose, as well. And Rick's repair services, all that's just a few keystrokes away. Just type in Motorrad Electric. Don't mind the spelling. Rick's site uh, will populate in your search. So, Rick, thanks for all you do and keep up the great work. Now, a word about Boxer 2 Valve. I first became a regular customer with Boxer 2 Valve a few years ago when refreshing an R90S. 
William and Edward Plam's video repair series, well, that was a go-to reference. It made that job and repair session much easier and really an enjoyable process. Boxer 2 valve carries only the highest quality parts, mainly manufactured by OEM suppliers, so the fit is perfect and the repair, well, it's done just one time. Fitment and applications for all parts are clearly listed. To quickly find what you need, you simply enter your year and model of your bike and you'll see only the parts that fit. Shipping, that's always fast with most orders going out that day at 2 p.m. and shipping is available to all parts of the globe. Boxer 2 Valve carries a wide variety of premium special tools and maintenance items, many of those unique to their catalog. William and Edward and the team at Boxer 2 Valve are Airhead fans, and as they say, with a passion for simpler times and uncomplicated machines. Check them out for all your parts needs, Boxer2Valve.com. That's the number two, Boxer2Valve.com. Time to visit with the aforementioned proprietor of Boxer 2 Valve. And as we've been doing on this program, you know, we've taken a little bit of a left turn. We're going to stay with our K75 theme, get some nice insight and history from William Plam. Back on the line with William Plam. And William, we're going to go off the reservation a little bit today. We're going to talk about the K75 and why that could be what I'm going to term a worthy garage partner for an airhead owner. So full disclosure here, I bought a K75, a 94 model, uh, earlier in the summer of 2023, uh, just this past year. I had it for uh, maybe seven or 800 miles, uh, four or five months, and I loved it. Uh, it was in really good shape when I bought it. Rick Jones had just serviced the bike uh, down at Motorrad Electric. He's a, a fan uh, and rider of the K75, so I knew it was in good shape. However, uh, as often happens, uh, I found another bike I wanted to purchase, which is the RT we've discussed here. So the K75 had a short-lived experience and time in my garage, a very short tenure, but I enjoyed it. All that being said, the reason I purchased it initially was, I get your thoughts to open up this segment here, I always just really enjoyed the styling of the K75, in particular, the K75C with that cafe, cafe fairing. Tell me about your initial impressions of, of the K-Bike, especially the K75 when it was first released. Yeah, that's right around the same time when I when I be, became a, uh, got involved as a BMW dealer and actually went to the K75 intro, which was in San Diego at the time in like 1985, I think it was. And um, yeah, it was really a p pretty interesting bike. We the um, to just to put everything into perspective, you we could start a little bit with the, the whole K100s too because yes. they're so they're so closely uh, related. You know, uh, they, they really are. It's all part of the same sort of development. And I I would, my my favorite was always the K75S. I gotta say, I liked, I really loved, enjoyed riding those, and I kind of have my desire to find one of those a nice one someday too so when they first came out you were a dealer uh and what was the lead up and the build up to these if you recall because we all remember the quote-unquote last edition 
1984, the last boxer edition, which never was the last edition. Um, but what kind of uh, scuttlebutt rumors, uh, innuendo, true or not true, were you hearing either from dealer reps or other folks in the business uh, in front of the launch of the K100, which did come out first? Yeah, the K100 came out, I think, in 83 already. Mm-hmm. And- Started and the, it was te- technically an '85 model year. Most of this production we got, you know, so late '83. I think they started the first ones. '84 um, they built them. A lot of a lot of the bikes we got as '85 model year motorcycles were manufactured in '84. So there was that. That's when that whole thing kicked off. And then they made the the uh, K70. The K75 came out in '86. So they'd had a couple of years to get some of the bugs out of the K100, and then um, they applied a lot of that newfound knowledge to the K75, and that was actually pretty smart of them to do it that way, because they they were able to bypass a lot of the teething problems that the K100 had and get straight into a bike that was very reliable. Yeah, I think these days the K75 is probably the more desired model of the classic flying brick over the k100 uh people all you always hear people say the smoothness of the motor uh is the real big difference there and you know maybe yeah maybe that extra piston and and horsepower in the k100 uh can propel you along a little bit better um but supposedly the k75 a little bit more stable platform for whatever reason i don't know but getting back to that question though what was were, were people excited about the K-bikes coming out to, that you recall? What were your thoughts on it? Was it time for the Airhead, uh, for the 247? People were thinking, okay, yeah, it's tired. We've had enough of it. This is the next big thing. What what were people talking about back then? Well, a, a, a lot of the people that, that I rec- could recall that were really into this thing, they really didn't want to see a completely rapid departure from the tradition. They wanted BMW to just redesign the Boxer, you know, and stay with the traditional platform over the Boxer motor. And and BMW, I think, however that works within the organization, decided that the Boxer motor was to be phased out. It was old-fashioned or something like that. And um, and so they went and they redesigned this whole new thing. So it was it was interesting. Uh, to see how different people reacted to it, some people really didn't want think it was a, a good good direction for BMW. And when this bike finally came out, they rode it, didn't like it. They were you know stuck with their their boxer. And it's funny kind of to think about now that at the end of the day, fast forward a couple twenty years, we now look at what they're doing with the boxer motor concept, right? So the, those folks that had that that idea back then, they, they were right all along. But the, that whole K-bike thing was kind of just like a, a diversion and a distraction more than anything. Yeah. It went. So true. So true. Uh, Arthur, what Arthur lives on and always will. It does, yeah, that's right. You know, I think, again, this is sort of my uh, amateur take on this. I, I'm not an expert by any stress of the imagination. But uh, the K-bike, especially the early ones, you look back at it historically, to me... There seemed to be an almost automotive quality to the design and manufacturing of the bike compared to just the straight boxer of the day. So fuel injection, the bike was more, much easier to start. 
uh, I think. You know, you weren't sort of just waiting for it to uh, lump over and turn over and hope the carburetors uh, were getting fueled properly and the air mixture and all that stuff. The fuel injectors, uh, if, if, it was, if it was all good, it just fired up instantly. The lines were more modern, I think, on those bikes. It also had that sort of signature BMW kidney grill. Uh, in the front that the that the cars were known for and then the dash display was kind of uh, an automotive styling in my opinion so uh, did, did you see that this was a more uh, automotive vernacular to the bike than than previous uh, airheads yeah oh totally it t- totally se- seems that way and and just the way that it's laid out uh, the it's unique to this day the way that they put the you know the way the engines uh, oriented laying outside essentially and and how the whole power powertrain flow works and so yeah it, it's it's uh there's a lot of clever logic behind the layout and very and very it is very sort of automotive i totally agree and it it had the uh, le jetronic the first one uh, had the le jetronic um fuel injection system from Bosch, and that was pretty much that was a standard at the at that time for in for the cars they were building as well. So there was a there was a whole lot of crossover, and if I remember, there was even a few little bits and pieces that were from the car segment that they they, they used the existing parts and things like the fuse box cover or something like that was like the same one on. Oh yeah, interesting series or something like that. You know, it was the same exact part or something like that. I remember there was some parts that I recognized in the cars. Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. And I, like I said, you know, the first thing that struck me about the K seventy five when I bought it was again just the sort of instant startup quality. I mean, you're just right there, uh, you know, fires right up. And the other thing I really enjoyed about it was that, as we were talking about here, the sort of design element. I think, you know, you can look at a lot of motorcycles from the eighties. Uh, and the designs, color schemes, et cetera, et cetera, can get dated pretty quickly. Uh, I, just for whatever reason, I've always, I think the K75 or the K bikes of that era held up design-wise. And interestingly enough, uh, you know, I, uh, I didn't have this bike for that long. I bought it in May and sold it last month. So it had a short tenure in my garage. But interestingly enough, William, I sold it to a guy here in Arkansas, on the west side of the state, about three hours from me, I don't think the guy that bought it was more than 21 or 22 years old. And I, I asked him, I said, well, why, you know, of all the motorcycles you could buy, this was his first bike. Of all the ones you could buy, why this? And without hesitation, he said, I just like the way it looks. Oh, wow, that's cool. Yeah. And then, of course... My next question, which a lot of people would think yeah, this is exactly what you should ask next. I said, what are you going to do with it? And he said, oh, no. He said, I'm not chopping it up. I'm going to keep it uh, the way it is. I like the lines and the looks of it. And I was like, sold. You are the right buyer for this bike. So um, there you have it. Um, another, yeah, another, uh, some other things about this, you know, talking about the design about it and stuff. Um, the fit and finish on the K was a bit of a departure. There were a lot more molded plastic parts uh, than the Boxer. Uh, things like the fuse cap you, uh, cover you mentioned and other body parts might have been bar- bar- borrowed from the automotive industry. Uh, but they were a lot, they were plastic. They weren't as robust 
uh, as the boxer. And my feeling on this, I think I'm right, and you can tell me otherwise, but I think that we're building the K-bikes, especially the K-75, uh, more so than the K-100, sort of to a price point. So that's why you weren't seeing, you were seeing probably more plastic parts, molded plastic parts on K-bikes than you were uh, on, a, on a 247 Boxer. What do you think? Well, totally, yeah. I mean, that bike was definitely made, designed to be manufactured. It was, the, the manufacturing process was, was a key part of the whole design process, I, I think. I actually went to the factory back in the day when they were making those in the, on the assembly line. They were still making the, the Boxers and the K-bikes at the same time. And it was pretty interesting to see because they, they uh, basically, if I remember correctly, they built the engines for the K-bikes um, on a lower floor, and they came up on an elevator, and then they just basically dropped the frame right onto the, to the, to the engine, the whole drivetrain and everything like that, plugged in a bunch of wires, and next thing you know, it was a motorcycle. And with the Boxer, it's, there was a lot more intense labor, manpower or people working on it, the engine had to be assembled by hand, more or less. I mean, you can't get a robot to compress the rings and put the cylinder. <laughs> no. And and, um, and and you need like to lift the motor into the frame and set it in there and put the studs through and all that, you know. So I mean, it was like with the K bike, it was it seemed so just like they had a lot more robotics and just like bam, bam, they, the bikes were built. And so yeah, so I think that was. Part of it, and it, it, it also to kind of go along with the ease of assembly and everything like that. Yeah, they were they were taking advantage of uh, of less expensive materials wherever wherever it was possible. Now you mentioned at the top of this uh, segment, you were at the release press release event for the K100, I guess it was, and in K75. And in San Diego, so that was, I guess, pretty close to where you were already, uh, which was kind of convenient there in California. Uh, tell, what, you, what are your memories of that event? Yeah, it was really cool. Um, basically, they, um, they used to do dealer events um, all over the place. It just depended on where. I mean, you know, it just happened to be San Diego, but it, sometimes it was out of the United States or over the years we went to, you know, Texas and Arizona, all kinds of places like that, whatever. But it happened to be there, and yeah, it was it was cool because I wasn't I, I wasn't officially like a dealer yet, but it was so close to where it was just some technicalities to sort out that the rep said, "Hey, you're invited to come." So I, it was my first exposure to actually being in, a, in an environment like that. It was really really cool, and um, yeah, we got I got a little. Uh, gift, which was, it's like a box uh, to put all the brochures in and you lift the side panels up and it shows like the motor. It's really cool. Um, I still have it today. Neat. I got that event. It's one of those things that they only handed out to dealers and it's like, you know, it's priceless. Do you remember uh, the color and the bike you rode at the test? Yeah, they, it was pretty much, they had the, all the different bikes there. They had the, the C was blue. And the, um, I think, I can't remember if the S was already, yeah, they brought the S out at the same time. I think the RT came a little bit later. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah, my favorite color uh, of that era, K-Bike, the classic K-Bike era, uh, era, I think they called it Columbia 
silver, which was kind of that light green yeah. silver. I always thought that just looked spot on, especially on the K75C with the with the fairing on there. One of my favorite colors. Yeah, it's a cool bike, definitely. What about um, bugs, fixes, issues, and things like that? So as you mentioned, uh, you were at the release for the K75C there. I guess that was 85, 86, or whatever, just about ready to become a dealer uh, in your timeline. Uh, so maybe we can turn the page a little bit a year, go forward a year or two here. What do you remember about uh, common issues? What were guys bringing K-bikes in for sort of when they were new uh, for repairs, those type of things? How much time do we have? <laughs> <laughs> really? Um, yeah. So, um, yeah, the 85 K100s, um, they we talked about they started making in 83 the first series of k100 um they had a lot of problems a lot of a little silly stupid stuff but still they were they were problems and they they fixed a lot of it already in the next year for 86 a lot of changes were made so we, you can instantly tell the 85 to 86 as long as it, it, by looking at the tail section for starters and it, it the 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 uh, original one has the pasture grab handle sort of like as part of the seat cushion itself, kind of little plastic cutouts. And then on the, on the 86 and later, they put little handles into the tail section. So that's the first thing. On the 85s, we had a lot of problems. Uh, they were coming in. Fork seals were blowing like crazy. Uh, they had Then they came up with a better one. Um, the water pumps leaked. They had a water pump seal that... It was the first time they put a water pump on a motorcycle, so you know you gotta you know give it to them. That they had to figure that one out. Um, but those would leak, and we got very good at fixing those. You could fix the water pump on those bikes. You still can. You don't need to replace it like automotive style. You actually disassemble, put new seals in. No big deal. But so that was the thing. A lot of problem with the gauges. Um, the older a bike, you'll see the '85 model year. We'll call it has a four-liter light, I think, and a seven-liter light. had, like, two reserve lights on it, and that version had a really unreliable um, sending unit in the tank. And so even if the, light, the lights would come on and off, and, you know, it was like you, the best thing you could do is figure, you know, carry a, a, a gallon with you and see how many miles you could go. <laughs> <laughs> and just use... But, but even that wasn't completely accurate because the Speedos would fail all the time. <laughs> and the Speedo is completely electronic. It's not, like, hooked into the computer or anything like that. So if it stops getting an impulse or the contacts get bad, then you're riding it. It's not accumulating any miles because um, it was electronic. It wasn't cable-driven. And so they, we had to take the, speed up, the instrument housings apart, and they had a circuit board with uh, brass connections or copper connections and it wasn't uncommon to see the connections of the pins to the circuit board completely green, like, you know, the, with the color of, of copper when it, when it oxidizes, right? And you, we had to scrape, scrape the corrosion away and put, um, the fix was to put some um, conductive silver paint on there to kind of hmm. bridge the gap and get the connections going. And we had to drill vent holes in there because they would fog up. And um, I'm just thinking about all the things we did on the speedometer. Wow. And many times just replace them. Um, 
Then the exhaust heat shields, they have these little welded on um, little brackets and a little square nut would go into the cage, you know, that was welded on. And then the heat shield would attach um, to screw into these little um, square M5 nuts. And then those would break. And the heat shield would buzz. And then, you know, the fix there was we had to take the heat shield off and drill holes in the muffler and put, like, expanding nut certs in there. And and with spacers, we did that. The center stands would break. Um, you know, you guys just go to the supermarket, put the thing up on the center stand, and bam, the bike would fall over. So we had to change those out. Um, let's see, what else was there? Oh, yeah, and the, 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 the worst thing about the... Um, 85, this is kind of interesting one, I think, um, is there's this thing called the Sprague Clutch. Um, it's basically, if you think about the layout of a K-bike, you've got the crankshaft on the right-hand side in the direction of travel, uh-huh. and then you've got the gearbox in the, in the middle still, so you need to, the, the power has to transfer from the end of the crankshaft over to the input shaft of the, of the uh, gearbox, right? Yep. And so there's there's a um, a big gear that's machined into the into the into the end of the crankshaft. The crankshaft has a, a helical cut, machined gear like as in, an integral part of it, and then that drives an intermediate shaft uh, that, that goes down the center. And so this is also, of course, a helical cut gear that mates it. Now, so if you have these two gears and the, um, normally, then the teeth would you know bang back and forth. So you need to have some sort of tension in there to keep the teeth. Um, from from having any backlash, and so they put this thing. It's called a sprag clutch, and it's basically a thin thinner gear. That so you've got the the width of the gear. Let's say, for example, is um, you know whatever an inch. Let's say on the on the end of the crank, and then the the, the thing that it mates to and spins is made up of two gears, and they're spring loaded against each other. So that there there there's uh, the smaller gear is is designed to keep a little tension there, so that the um, so that the gears don't bang around with backlash, right? And so um, this what happened is on the early bikes, that spring mechanism was not designed very well. And in the worst cases, it would actually shear a pin oh, off Lord. That, that the spring was attached to to keep it in tension. And so the result of that would be the bike sounded like it was going to explode. Yeah. It would start out like on de- deceleration, um, that it, that it would um, make some rattly noises, and then oh, as, it, as it progressed, once it started going, then it was like it was really bad. So the fix was we had to take the, the split the case, and we there was a procedure to do that in the uh, in the shop on the lift with the bike, the motor still in the bike, wow. and then you would basically drop the thing down and suspend hold this immediate shaft and do some modifications, put this new gear on there, and then you had to tension the gear when you put it back in. It was pretty complex mechanical work to do, but it was kind of fun. I did a bunch of them, and I really kind of like, liked it because it was, it, was, uh, it was very challenging in a way to do that work, um, but it was fun. And so by the time the 86 came out, they, they made an improvement to the K100 um, out, you know, counter shaft assembly, and they'd improved that, and it was much better. But when they designed the K75, they used yet another version of that same concept that was bulletproof. So that was one of the cool things about the K75, that um, it, had, it had like a third-generation uh, drive unit on the input shaft. But that's also why it makes, they, they, you notice how K-bikes sound really unique. They have that whining sound. Yes. You know, 
That's coming from that year I'm talking about. That's the origin of that sound. Interesting. Wow, boy, you weren't you weren't kidding when you said there were a lot of uh, a lot to talk about there. You know that just makes me think some criticisms, and you hear this, folks hear this from time to time when a manufacturer will put out a, a brand new model. Uh, oh well, uh, there's all these issues, and they're quote unquote just beta testing it in the uh, public forum <laughs> with the with the buyers. Um, Boy, it almost sounds like that was the case there with the first uh, K100. Uh, that that's a shocking amount of stuff to go. Seems like to go wrong in a first year model bike. Yeah, there's a lot, but I, I would imagine that they they were, they were probably aware of a lot of these things before they already started. Because I mean, they could do they have to stay on a timeline, right? So even if a lot of these little problems show up in the while they're testing in Spain or wherever they're driving the thing around, yeah, they go well. We're just gonna have to suck it up and fix it down the road. I were, would, you know. were you getting uh, just service bulletins and things on a, re- on a regular basis, I would imagine? Yeah, yeah, we'd get service bulletins. Back, that, back then, they came in an envelope, and then we'd put them in a binder. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you know, so you mentioned the, uh, the fuel level sender and, and the yep. uh, gauges. So on this particular bike I bought, here, I've got a story on that, too. So uh, the fuel sender uh, on those uh, bikes, K100 or K75, as anybody who's got one of these knows nowadays, finding that part's no longer available uh, and finding one's difficult uh, at best. And odds are, unless you're doing some sort of modification to it, if it's an original part, it's probably going to fail again anyway. And so when uh, Rick Jones did the re- uh, refurbishment on this bike, he put in a new fuel pump. Uh, on uh, in the gas tank, and he just took the sender out. She said to hell with it, and you know ran aground to the frame. And he told me, look, you know the fuel pump's new. Don't worry about the fuel lights on there. His his sort of take on it was they were just anxiety inducing anyway because you never knew whether it was true or not. And the I the red and the yellow light could be working, couldn't be working. Maybe you had this much gas, maybe you didn't. And for, for him, he just said, look, I'm just going to, you know, to hell with it. I'm just going to take it out and, you know, do like everybody else does. Look at your trip meter and you know how much gas you have. Exactly. Right? You know, that, it just sparked a memory there, there of uh, going, riding in those early days. And I don't, if it was one of the guys I was riding with, and or maybe it was a customer, but it's just like absolutely panic, like, oh, I'm, 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 the light came on, you know, and I'm going to run out of gas. It's been on for 40 miles, you know, and then we get to the gas station, we put like a gallon in it. <laughs> yes, so true, so true. That's funny. Yeah. And then the Speedo gears. So here's the funny thing. The guy I bought the bike from, uh, this K75, he had, I guess he was maybe the second or third owner. And it, the bike had sat for a little while, and he took it, uh, as I again mentioned to uh, Rick Jones down there, Motor Rod Electric, serviced it, got it back up and running. And he had a couple other issues post, you know, break in after the service. I think you mentioned that water pump seal needed to be replaced, and he had to take it back for something else. I don't know what it was. Apparently, the straw that broke the camel's back for this guy who owned it before me was. Uh, the last thing that broke on it, he went to reset the trip meter, and it quit working. Uh, the whole uh, in, the whole odometer and trip meter just stopped working. 
And he, I guess that was the end of the rope for him. And he's like, you know, I am not putting up with the idiosyncrasies and repair structure of a, you know, 40, whatever year old motorcycle. I'm just going to sell it. And you probably know this. The fix on that was just there are a couple gears inside of that speedometer uh, that need to be replaced. And when I opened it up, William, you've probably done this. There was, a, I think, an orange gear and a green gear that were in there. And they were basically, when I opened it up and pulled it out, it was like a piece of wax candy. Uh, they were just, I mean, I picked the gear up and it basically just broke in my hand. Uh, and that was exactly what the problem was. Uh, there's these days, uh, there's an eBay seller or somebody who's got, uh, replacement gears, uh, really simple procedure, uh, to do, uh, just to replace those. But, uh, boy, when I looked at that, I, my thought was who would have put such brittle, crappy plastic in there that wouldn't last, uh, you know, a, a very long time. And again, they're building it to a price point. Yeah, you know, I, that's the first time I've ever heard of that. Really? So maybe, maybe that's one of those things that, that they that when the plastic was still relatively fresh, it worked fine, right? And yeah. And maybe, you know, you add 20-some-odd years to it, then and now, you know, it, it starts to fall apart, you know, material de- decom- decomposes or whatever. That's, that's, that's wild. Yeah. And so... But we, there's a really... Yep, go ahead. I'm good, no, I want to hear what you have to say. Go ahead. So there is a really, I just want to tell about a really neat part. There's a guy, a uh, German company, is a guy named Axel Joost, W-O-O-S-T. Um, we, we, he makes a conversion kit so you could, you know, if you're having just like irreparable problems with the uh, instruments on a K-bike, that you basically plug it right into the original plug-in of, for, you know, the instrument plug, and then you, it has a bunch of wires, and you can put in it like some kind of aftermarket speedo and tachometer or some modern LED thing or something like that. It allows you to rel- relatively easily and relatively seamlessly switch over and just get rid of that thing, put something completely different in there. Oh, okay. A plug-and-play kit. And what was the fellow's name? Yeah, so we have it on our website. Oh, okay. Uh, at wonderlishamerica.com because we have that's where we have all our K-Bike bits and pieces, um, which is also our website. But it's a used J. J- O-O-S-T, Axel Youth is, is the guy's name. He's an electrical guy. And he, he has a lot of really interesting electrical components for the motorcycle, for, for BMWs. And um, yeah, we have most of those all on our website. Oh, good, good. So um, you know that even, well, if people know that something like that even exists. Yeah, know? I had not heard of that. that uh, that's the first on me. So, okay, William. So we spent, you know, ostensibly the last 20 minutes here uh, basically kicking and, and beating uh, the K-bikes while they're down almost, it seems like, which is unfair. Uh, because, it is totally unfair. <laughs> right? Those, uh, were, you, those are the teething problems. They yeah, exactly. Got, they got all worked out. Yep. Yep, exactly. So the 94 model I had, uh, and, if any, and the whole point of this uh, segment is, okay, yeah, I own this bike, but is, a, uh, is a, a K75 a worthy garage partner for an airhead owner? And I unsubstantiatedly will say yes, uh, because A, they're affordable, still affordable these days. Uh, if you're already an airhead rider, you're familiar with sort of the BM nomenclature, uh, the way of doing things, parts, uh, assembly procedure, uh, how bikes are put together and sort of uh, looking at 
uh, maybe a repair manual and things like that. If you're familiar with an airhead, it's easy to uh, fall into a, to a K bike uh, as well. And so the 94 model I had, it was a non -A non ABS and um, a, it was under $3,000. Uh, I purchased it for smooth running bike. As I said, starts right up. Uh, I like that it had, um, that it didn't have the ABS, but uh, some people uh, like those, and they're, they, I think they got a bad rap to some degree uh, that it could be a problematic system. But so what, what, what would you just say to somebody who's an airhead owner and sees a, a nice, you know, maybe mid, uh, mid-90s uh, classic K-bike for sale? First off, why would you maybe recommend getting one? And then secondly, what are some of the things a prospective buyer would want to look for? Uh, when purchasing one. Okay, yeah, no, happily. Um, I would definitely not discourage anyone from a K-bike, that's for sure. They're, they're, really, they're really fun to ride, and, um, and they can be very reliable, easy to work on, fun to work on, too. And once you get them dialed in, they just, they just kind of go and go and go. I think that um, I, I also... I think it's cool that you've got a non-ABS version, and that's what I'd recommend. Not that ABS is a bad thing, it's a great thing, but the ABS that they had on those things, that very first version, was novel at the time, um, is still cool, but they do, they do fail. And when they fail, um, the repair is uh, expensive or almost impossible. If you can even get the parts anymore, I'm not sure. But they, uh, they, they do fail for because of lack of maintenance, and that's very common. You know, the brake fluid doesn't get changed every year, you know, for 25 years. That's probably pretty rare to find that. And uh, so if you can find a non-ABS model, that's really cool. I, they, I know that they brought in a lot in 1988. Uh, the, I always had a fond uh, thoughts about the, uh, those, the red, Marrakesh Red K75S from 88. That was a really cool bike. Um, simple and they they really like I said previously by the time they came out with the case 5 they had a lot of those things figured out that um applied to the very first year so just you know the 85 k100 i would probably stay away from that pretty much no matter what but the k75 any model year is, is a good good reliable motorcycle some things to look for on there the the most probably the, the biggest thing that can cause you some grief is um corrosion in the gas tank they uh, for the K75 and K100, they're aluminum. The tanks are aluminum, and BMW at the time, you know, recommended that you drain the fuel tank once a year, and that was to get all the water condensation moisture out of the tank. Of course, that's something that nobody does or did religiously. So that's right. Um, um, so you you might run into a situation where you. you <clears throat> getting a tank and you can sometimes you can see it's not, it's not leaking yet but you can kind of look underneath on the left hand side typically if the paint's bubbling or you see anything or get inside if you can with a with a light or see if you can see any corrosion but that's something to look at um but really there's not a, there's not a lot of problems with those bikes um sometimes you if you'll see one if it's if it's not been um a lot of, if the battery's gone dead um, the starter relays will sometimes click in the closed position, and as soon as you hook up a new battery, the starter motor goes. So the starter relays do fail on those things. Um, but 
nothing jumps out. It's like, you know, like stay away from or look out for on a K75. They're, they're, they're pretty bulletproof uh, motorcycles. Yeah, and of course, the one thing everybody who owns one knows or prospective owners know if you've uh, started to do your research on these is the, the spline lube. Uh, that's I, I didn't have the bike long enough to do it. Basically, I was told it was done by the previous owner, but there was no way to uh, verify that. Uh, so I bet, you know, I, I rode the bike for 700 miles, had new tires on it uh, when I bought it. And, um, but my understanding is that's something, uh, and I don't know if this is, this interval is correct, uh, but my reading was if you're changing the rear tire uh, on your K bike uh, every three to four or 5,000 miles, whatever it is, uh, probably not a bad idea to at least uh, do the uh, drive spline lube at the, at the same time. What's your thought on that? Yeah, that was something that was always a good idea. Um, some, that is one thing that some of the earlier models had uh, worse spline issues than later on. I think they changed the harding process. But the procedure is pretty easy. You have to support the motorcycle uh, in such a way that you can have it up, sitting on the front wheel end with the center stand off. So you have to like put uh, some blocks underneath the motor or something like that, and you remove the center stand, and then... You have to support the bike accordingly with some straps or something, so it's safe to work on. But the center stand has to come off, as I remember, and take the battery out. I think the rear fender would have to come out, and then um, you would um, re remove the swing arm pivots, take the whole swing arm and final drive assembly off. That gives you the access to the drive shaft itself, and then you've got, like, if I remember, like maybe eight bolts. There are M6 Allen bolts that come out, and then you can just pull the whole gearbox straight out and clean the splines, both on the clutch side, and also a good time to kind of look and make sure everything looks good in there. Lube everything up, slip it back together again. It's not a, not that big of a deal. It's kind of a fun little, you know, two-hour nuts and bolts uh, puzzle. It's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah, a good idea to do that. So, um, yeah, it's definitely a good idea to do that once in a while. With Nick. a rear tire change, it's probably a good call. Yeah. Last thing on this, William, I, this probably is not or was not on your radar. Uh, I don't know what your internet consumption is, but it's worth noting there's a um, program by a guy called Ryan uh, uh, on YouTube. Uh, it's called Fort Nine, I think, and I see some of the of the videos he does on a regular basis. And maybe, I don't know, gosh, two months ago, he did just a short uh, segment on the K75, uh, and it's a popular channel. So, I mean, he regularly has over a, a million views or subscribers or something. I, I don't know. It. All, what I'm trying to say is a lot of people watch it, is what I'm saying. What's it called again? It's called uh, the guy, Fort, F-O-R-T-9, N-I-N-E. And okay. the guy's name's uh, Ryan. He's from Canada. A lot of people know who I'm talking about, and he he does you know a couple videos a month. He sort of takes a scientific look. He's kind of I would describe him as the Bill Nye science guy of motorcycles, uh, if that makes any sense. Awesome. Yeah, and, I'm going to watch that. that yeah, cool. and so he did like a 10 minute uh, sort of feature on the K75, <laughs> and it was pretty funny. Every 
a lot of the comments on here were, oh, great. You know, these bikes used to cost $2,500. Now this guy does a segment on them. All the, the prices are going to get jacked up on it because everybody's, <laughs> everybody's going to see this and think, oh, I got to get one, you know. So um, I don't know. Maybe now's the time to get them before the prices go up. Who knows how these things will go. But, William, I as I mentioned at the top of this, uh, I I had that K75. It was a short-lived run for me. I'd, I'd like to have another one if the opportunity presents itself. And yeah, we went off the radar a little bit here talking about a K-bike, but I think it fits uh, obviously into our conversation with uh, classic uh, BMWs that uh, both you and I and everybody else who listens to enjoy riding on and working on. Very much so. Yeah, I think so too. And it's pretty much the same era. It is. It is. It is. All right, buddy. Well, look, as always, uh, enjoy the time. Uh, if you've got a K75, you need parts, Wonderleash America, right? That's the site you go to? Exactly. Right? Yep. So not Boxer 2 Valve, obviously. Uh, it's not a Boxer 2 Valve, the K75. Uh, lots of parts for your K75, K100, and other bikes uh, at your companion site. I guess we could call it your home site, the uh, the mother site, uh, Wonderleash America. All right, William, as always, a pleasure, buddy. We'll catch up with you soon. Yeah. Thank you very much. You take care. All right, that's part one of our look at the K75. Our next episode will be a visit with Leo Goff. We're looking forward to that. And a reminder, this episode was really sort of an opportunity to explore another part of the classic BMW Motorrad family with some familiar friends and contributors. So we hope you enjoyed it and you'll join us next time for part two. Until then, so long everyone. The Airheads 247 podcast is distributed and produced by From Off Productions. Our producer engineer is Jeff Glover. I'm Darren Dorton. Look forward to catching up with you next time.